بسم الله والحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه ومن اهتدى بهدى أما بعد First and foremost we welcome our brothers to the ASWJ College Marriage Course which uh, will be run over two days insha'Allah which is today uh, and tomorrow bi'ithnillahi ta'ala <clears throat> and this course my dear brothers the main objective behind it is for us to cover some of the main points regarding marriage starting with what comes before marriage and then the engagement period then the contract and then simply covering the rights between a husband and a wife the topic of marriage it is huge in islam and it's one of the great chapters in fiqh so in a two-day course, we cannot expect to cover everything. But we try to cover a lot of the important aspects, especially what's related to us today and what we consider to be commonly asked questions. Now, there's a booklet in front of you. This booklet, my dear brothers, it's been compiled from one main book it's mainly taken from one book and that book is Al-Mawsu'a Al-Fiqhiyya Al-Muyassara for one of the great scholars uh, Sheikh Hussein Al-Awashiya Hafizahullah Sheikh Hussein is one of the main students of Sheikh Al-Albani Rahimahullah okay he's one of the main students of Sheikh Al-Albani and he's written a beautiful simple book in fiqh in all chapters so we've derived this from his chapter of nikah his uh, chapter of marriage it's very simple he'll give you a heading on a topic in marriage and then he brings you a dilla from the Quran and the Sunnah regarding it okay it's a two-hour session roughly um, I do allow for questions and answers throughout um, the the course, but يعني, the less questions that we get asked, the more we're able to cover يعني, through. I, I set an agenda, and Allahumma barik with the sisters, يعني, so much questions, and as expected, I was not able to meet the agenda that I, uh, I was expecting. But alhamdulillah, it's all beneficial. So if anyone has a question regarding what we're asking about, feel free to put your hand up uh, and ask. طيب. So marriage, ya ikhwa. This is important for either those who are already married, those who have daughters, sisters, who are getting, marri getting married, or ready for marriage, and those who are looking to get married. This course, inshallah, has a benefit for everyone. The first thing we start with is the definition of nikah. What is nikah? The word nikah, as you can see in Arabic, it means abdam wa tadakhul. 
to combine something together. That's what the word nikah means in Arabic. You can see why marriage is called nikah. Because the word nikah in Arabic means to put something together. Because the husband and the wife, they become together as one. Okay? That's what the word nikah in Arabic means. And the word nikah in Islam is marriage. The marriage that we know. That's what nikah means, marriage. The next point is the encouragement of marriage. Us as Muslims, we are encouraged to get married. Allah Azza wa Jal encourages us to get married. The Prophet ﷺ encouraged us to get married. And he says, the religion of Islam has encouraged marriage. Sometimes it refers to marriage as the sunnah of the messengers. Marriage has sometimes been referred to as the way of all the prophets and the messengers. As Allah Azza wa Jal said, وَلَقَدْ أَرْسَلْنَا رُسُولًا مِّن قَبْلِكَ وَجَعَلْنَا لَهُمْ أَزْوَاجَ وَذُرِّيَّةً What does Allah say? We have already sent messengers before you and assigned to them wives and descendants. So the Rusul had wives, not only our Prophet Muhammad So when you get married, you're not only following a sunnah of one messenger, you're following the sunnah of the Rusul, of all of them. And this is from the greatest encouragement for us as Muslims to get married. And Allah Azza wa Jal, He also refers to marriage as a favor upon us from Him. Marriage is also referred to as a favor. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَاللَّهُ جَعَلَ لَكُمْ مِنْ أَنفُسِكُمْ أَزْوَاجًا وَجَعَلَ لَكُمْ مِنْ أَزْوَاجِكُمْ بَنِينَ وَحَفَدًا وَرَزَقَكُمْ مِنَ الطَّيِّبَاتِ Allah has made for you from yourselves mates and has made for you from your mates sons and grandchildren and has provided for you from the good things. Look, Allah is saying, He has made for you he has made for you, from yourselves, spouses. Shabab, there's books here at the front. Allah barik fi. So this shows that marriage is a favor from Allah upon us. Allah Azza wa Jal has favored us with this blessing. And sometimes Allah refers to marriage as a ayah, a sign. And that, my brothers, is to show the importance of marriage. Because Allah never refers to something as an ayah unless it's something great. When you look in the Quran, what does Allah refer to as signs? Shams, look how great the sun is. The qamar, the moon. The stars, the Qur'an, all great things are Allah's signs. And in the Qur'an, Allah says, وَمِنْ آيَاتِهِ And from His signs, and خَلَقَ لَكُمْ مِنْ أَنفُسِكُمْ azwaja. And from His signs, is that He created for you from yourselves, partners. 
لتسكنوا إليها so that you can live with them وجعل بينكم مودة ورحمة and he placed between you affection and mercy we're on page 3 Shabbat and he placed between you tranquility and affection what does this verse teach us? that the affection and the tranquility in the Muslim home comes from Allah. Because Allah is saying He placed it. He placed affection and tranquility between you. So we as Muslims should never think that the love and affection and the rahmah in the home comes from ourselves. No. It comes from Allah. And that's why if the Muslim home is not built on taqwa, it'll be a miserable home. If the Muslim home is not built on deen, it will be a miserable home. Because Allah is the one who puts the mercy and the affection in the home. No one else. He tells us that in this verse. How many brothers complain? That no matter what they do or give to their wife, they're always fighting, for example. Why? Because when you look into their life, there's no religion. The brother thinks he can bring mercy and love through materialistic things. And that's not the case. The love and the mercy comes from Allah. So if my relationship with Allah is weak, my relationship in my home will be weak. Because Allah is the one who places these things in the home. Very important point. The Shaykh then says, and this is very important for us, the brothers, that a person might be hesitant in getting married due to the fear of expenses. The shaitan, he has waswas. And a person, my brothers, might be afraid. He might have a fear of getting married because he can't afford it. Yes, later on we are going to speak that a man gets married when he's able, no doubt. But this fear of getting married because you can't afford it, it can stem from shaitan. Because he's the one that wants to delay you in getting married. So you should not have the fear of getting married due to poverty. As Muslims, we shouldn't. Look what Allah Azza wa Jal says. Allah promised us not to have that fear. Allah says, وَأَنْكِحُوا الْأَيَامَ مِنْكُمْ وَالصَّالِحِينَ مِنْ عِبَادِكُمْ وَإِمَائِكُمْ إِيَّكُونُوا فُقَرَاءَ يُغْنِهِمُ اللَّهُ مِنْ فَضْلِهِ What a beautiful verse that brings comfort to you, the Muslim man, especially his heart. Allah Azza wa Jal says, Marry the unmarried among you and the righteous among your male slaves and female slaves. If they are poor, Allah will enrich them from his bounty. This is a promise from Allah. If they are poor, Allah will make them rich. You have to have somewhat tawakkul in Allah. No one is saying get married and do nothing about it and rely on... No. The man has to provide and he has to make an effort to provide. Yes, he must work and whatever else. 
But the fear of getting married due to poverty, this is from shaitan. Because shaitan wants to put these thoughts in our head to prevent Muslim homes from being established. Because what's the most hated thing to Iblis? It's the Muslim home. We all know the famous hadith, how Iblis has his throne on the ocean. And then he sends out his army. And they come back. And one of them says, I done such and such. And he tells him, you done nothing. Then one of them says, I caused division between this house. Then Iblis brings him closer. Iblis's biggest objective is to destroy a Muslim home. So if he can stop it from happening, he'll stop it. And that's why he puts that fear in Muslims' hearts. I can't get married because I can't afford it. If you're working and you have tawakkul in Allah and you're making an effort, don't have that fear. Get married because Allah promised He will enrich you. He will give you the risk, inshaAllah. We also have a hadith, an amazing hadith, where Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu narrated that the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, there are three people who Allah has promised to help them. Allahu Akbar. Three people Allah has promised that he will help them. The first is the Mukatab who wants to buy his freedom. And that is like the slave who wants to buy his own freedom. Allah will assist him. He'll make him rich. The second is the one who fears zina and wants to get married. Allah will assist him. And the third is the mujahid who fights in the path of Allah. Allah will assist him. These are three people Allah has promised that he will assist them. So my dear brothers, especially the ones who aren't married and the ones who have that fear. I know it's scary. We live in Sydney. Sydney is expensive. It's one of the most expensive cities. Rent, seven, eight, nine hundred dollars a week. Allahu Akbar, how am I gonna? No, don't be like that. Have tawakkul in Allah. As long as you're making an effort. That's important. Make the effort and have tawakkul. We also have the hadith. The Prophet sallallahu said, the dunya is a delight. A dunya mata'ah. When you look at the dunya, there's a lot of delights of the dunya. He said, and the best delight is the righteous wife. The greatest thing that you can have in this world is the righteous wife. So that shows as long as you are married and your marriage is on deen and you have a wife that fears Allah, then you're not poor. You are not poor. You are rich. So we should not fear marriage due to poverty. Understood? Tayyip. Are there any questions before we move on? Alhamdulillah. The next mas'ala is the ruling of marriage. What's the ruling of marriage? Marriage, my dear brothers, is one of those things where the five ahkam apply to it. 
And what that means is that marriage can either be wajib. to sunnah three mubah four makruh five haram can fall under one of those any one of those according to the individual okay marriage can be wajib. Can anyone tell me who marriage is wajib upon him? Control himself how? In terms of what? Desire. Excellent. The one who fears zina on himself. This person and he can provide. The one who fears Zina, and he can provide. It's compulsory, no doubt. He must get married. It can be a sunnah. Person doesn't necessarily fear falling into zina, but he can get married. It could be a sunnah. It could be mubah. He's already married, doesn't need to get married, wants to get married again. It can fall into that. Makruh. It can be disliked. If he fears somewhat, for example, he can't provide. Somewhat fears. It can be makruh. Haram. Haram if he knows he cannot give the wife her rights, for example. Okay? In our booklet, we go through the two main ones. Wajib and haram. Let's see what the sheikh says. He says, marriage is obligatory on every person who fears committing zina or evil sins. Marriage is obligatory on everyone who fears committing zina or evil sins. What's the proof it's obligatory? This hadith here. The hadith where the Prophet ﷺ said, Ya ma'ashar al-shabaab, O young men. Yeah, he's addressing the young men. Those of you who can support a wife, there's the condition. Man istata'a minkum ul-ba'a. Those who can support a wife should get married. Should get married. There you go, it's a command. He then said, why? Because it protects the gays and it protects the private parts. He then said, and whoever cannot get married, let him fast, because it reduces the sexual desire. So the one who can't get married, he fasts, because it reduces the sexual desire. So here the Prophet ﷺ is saying, whoever can get married, get married. They said it's a command. So the command means it's obligatory. Sheikh ibn Baz, rahimahullah, the great alim, he said, marriage is not obligatory on the one who fears zina 
it's obligatory on everyone who can get married. Meaning you don't have to fee zina for it to be obligatory. That's the fatwa of Ibn Baz. And it makes sense. He said, because the Prophet ﷺ commanded it. And as we're going to see, no person should ever not want to get married. This is not allowed in Islam. As we will see. Next, number four, is the forbidden marriage. The marriage that's haram. The Shaykh says, marriage is haram in the case of one who is not able to fulfill the obligatory right towards his wife. The one who cannot give his wife her rights, marriage is haram on him, such as provision or sexual intercourse. They're the main two. So if the man cannot provide for his wife, he's not allowed to get married. Or it's haram on him to get married. We are not talking about what a lady agrees to in a marriage. Because some women might accept to get married without provision. That's okay. But we're talking, for example, a lady that wants her haq. A man that cannot give her her haq, it's haram to get married. If he cannot provide, and if he has deficiency in sexual intercourse, for example. Because now he cannot give his wife her rights. Imam Tabari rahimahullah said, once the husband knows that he is not capable of providing for his wife or giving her her sadaq, which is her mahar, or giving her anything from her rights which are obligatory upon him, then it is not permissible for him to marry her until he makes it clear to her or he knows that he can fulfill her rights. What does this teach us, my brothers? Imam al-Tabari is saying, once the husband knows or the man knows, he cannot fulfill the lady's rights by giving her her provision or giving her her mahar or any of the other rights that she has, he can't get married until he makes it clear. So what does that mean? If you make it clear before marriage, and she accepts, it's okay. Or until you are able to provide it. This teaches us that we cannot deceive in marriage. We're not allowed to deceive. Anything I can't do, I make it clear. Imagine a man marrying a lady, and this man is not capable of being intimate. Is this oppression or not? And he didn't tell her. It's oppression, of course. And in Islam, we don't oppress. And we don't deceive. He says, if he has a deficiency which prevents him from the ability to be intimate, he must make it clear. If a man knows he cannot be intimate, he must make that clear, that he cannot be intimate. So that he does not deceive the wife. And it is not permissible for him to lie before marriage about his lineage. Meaning what? He can't say, I come from this tribe when he doesn't. Or this family when he doesn't. 
or about his wealth. Wallah, I'm a millionaire. And the guy's got six cents in his bank account. Can't. Or about his occupation. You can't lie about these things before marriage because marriage is the greatest contract you fulfill because it's making the private part halal. So you're not allowed to deceive and you're not allowed to lie. Are there any more copies of the book? Can you give one to the brother behind you? Allah barik fiqh. Regarding that, so what if the person that asked for like I doesn't ask about communities or doesn't ask about occupation? Just just learn that he can provide that. He doesn't ask what you were. That's okay. That's okay. If the person as long as we don't lie, that's all it is. As long as we don't lie. Now sorry? Oh, if they want. Anyone that wants to take notes, there's books there. Okay, Shabab. So it's obligatory on you to make things clear and that you don't deceive the female. Same thing with the female. The female must also be clear so that she does not deceive the husband either. And that's why he says, it is also obligatory upon the female to make clear any incapability or deficiencies which will prevent her from fulfilling the right of her husband or a deficiency which prevents her from the ability to be intimate or mental illness or a type of sickness. These are not things that can be hidden. These are things that must be mentioned so that the people are not deceived into a marriage. Like for example, a lady knows for certain from the doctors, and of course only Allah knows, but she's been informed by doctors, specialists, she can't have children. Is that something the husband deserves to know before marrying her or not? Of course it is. So we don't deceive. And it works both ways, from the man and the female. We make things clear before the contract. Okay? The Sheikh says once a deficiency is known and has been made apparent, then it's the person's right to refuse if they choose. So your job is just to make things clear. Then it's up to the person to accept or not accept. They can accept the deficiency or they cannot accept. It's up to them. As long as you made it clear. The next mas'ala shabab is the prohibition of abandoning marriage, which is called tabattul. Tabattul is choosing not to get married. This is not allowed in Islam. And it's not the quality of a Muslim. Many times we hear brothers and sisters saying, I never want to get married. This may be Jews. It's not allowed. We have a hadith of Sa'd ibn Abu Waqqas that Allah's Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam forbade Uthman ibn Maz'un to abstain from marrying. He forbade Uthman ibn Maz'un 
from abstaining to get married. And if the Prophet ﷺ forbids something, what does it make it? Haram. So a person who has no reason not to get married should not choose not to get married. If a person is able to get married, they should get married. This is our deen. And we all know the famous story of the three men when they asked about the Prophet's worship and they belittled it. Yeah? What did one of them say? I'm going to pray the entire night and I won't sleep. Because he thought he's better than the Messenger. And one said, I'm going to fast every day. And the other one said, I won't marry women. Yani, I'm going to dedicate myself to worship and I'm not going to get married. When the Prophet heard, they became angry. And he said, What's wrong with people who say one, two, three? As for me, and I am the most God-fearing of you, I pray some of the night and I sleep. And I fast some days and I break fast others. And I get married. He then said, whoever, whoever abandons my sunnah is not from me. So marriage, my dear brothers, is part of our life. We should not have this corrupted mentality or ideology that Allah, I don't want to get married or I never want to get married. This is not allowed in Islam. We now move on to choosing a wife. You, my dear brother, want to get married. What should you look for in a wife? Alhamdulillah, our sharia covers everything. It's already done the work for you. You just have to apply it. The one who is searching for a wife should search for the following qualities. Number one, she's a person of deen. That's the most important thing. She has religion. And we get that from the following hadith. Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu narrated that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa said, a woman is married for four qualities. Meaning, when men look for a wife, it's usually these four qualities that it revolves around. Her wealth, her family status, her beauty, and her religion. That's usually what men look for in marriage. Whether it's all of them or some of them. All those qualities or some of those qualities. Her wealth, her status, her beauty, her religion. Then the Prophet ﷺ said, Choose the one with religion, you will be saved. What does that mean? Choose the one with deen. Make religion your main priority in the wife and you will be saved. Meaning, you will live a happy life. You will not be miserable. You will be saved. Because once the man puts religion as his last priority or no priority and he looks for wealth 
status, beauty only, he will get married, but he won't be saved. He will live a life of disaster. We see it too many times. Religion, you are saved. This does not mean you should not or cannot take the other things into consideration. Beauty is, you want to be attracted. But what this means is, let religion be your main priority before everything. And you will be saved. So the first quality in a wife, Shabab, is her deen. And as I mentioned to the sisters, one of the mistakes some people make is when they marry people without deen, thinking that they can fix them later. Yeah? Is this something common? Very common. Sheikh ibn Uthaymin was asked this question. What's the ruling on someone who marries someone with no deen and thinks that they will help them change later? Ibn Uthaymin answered beautifully. He said, what makes them think that they will not change them? Yeah? The advice of the scholars, because they are wise, never take that risk. Never. Take that risk. Marry someone on your level or greater than you in religion. Looking within the family, as we will see in the next points, that is part of choosing a spouse. But at the same time, we have to balance. If someone is good, but they have a certain member of a family that's not good, I should not completely reject the idea based on one individual within that person's family. If I know for a fact that person is good. But generally looking within the person's environment is also part of looking for a spouse. Because a person's environment is a reflection of them. Somewhat a reflection of them. The second thing, Shabab, we look for in a wife is that she is from those who have many children and she is affectionate towards her husband. The wife should be someone who has or at least wants to have a lot of kids and is affectionate towards her husband. Point two. Yes, on page five. How do we know this? Look what the Prophet ﷺ used to command. Anas said he used to command us to marry and sternly forbid celibacy. And he would say, marry women who are wadud, meaning affectionate, prolific in bearing children. Marry women who are affectionate and have a lot of children. Why? He said, because... I will outnumber the Prophet on the Day of Resurrection. The Prophet ﷺ wants to boast about his Ummah on the Day of Judgment. So we are encouraged to have a lot of kids. 
So he tells us, marry the lady who has a lot of kids and the lady who is affectionate. And we're going to touch up on this point soon. Third quality in a wife, that she is loving and affectionate also towards her children. And she protects what belongs to her husband. Very important, my brothers. Three. She is affectionate towards her children and she protects and guards what is for her husband. Wallahi, if we just follow the sunnah of our Prophet ﷺ, we will never go wrong. If you just now, you my dear brother, if you're not married and you just think about these qualities, if you have these qualities in a wife, is that not a perfect wife? Someone who has her deen, someone who wants to have a lot of children, someone who is affectionate to her husband, someone who's going to be affectionate to her children, someone who protects her husband's belongings and his things. What more would you want in a life? That's the sunnah. How do we know that? The hadith, and Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, the best of the women who ride on camels are the good women of Quraysh. Prophet ﷺ is saying the best of women are the women of Quraysh. Why? He says they are most affectionate to small children and the most careful of what belongs to their husbands. Allahu Akbar. How much our sisters are in need of this quality. They are most affectionate to their children and more importantly, most protective over what belongs to their husband. This, my brothers, does not only mean their husband's wealth. It means everything about their husband. She protects her husband's wealth. She protects her husband's honor. She protects her husband's secrets. She protects her husband's home. This is the quality of a righteous wife. Wallahi, we ha how many brothers complain? that they work very hard and their wives are very careless with their money. This is not a wife that is protecting her husband's belongings. They're spending excessively on foolish things and the husband is working very hard. Where is this hadith? The righteous wife, she protects what belongs to her husband, everything, especially his secrets. She does not expose her husband. She does not excessively spend her husband's wealth with no right and so forth. So these are qualities, my dear brothers, based on the sunnah that we look for in a wife. Then we have choosing the husband. So these are the qualities that you, Shabab, need to have in you in order to be a good husband in Islam. The first is that he is a person of religion, a person of deen. And we get that from this hadith. The Prophet ﷺ said, when someone 
meaning a man whose religion and his character you are pleased with, comes to you, then marry her to him. If you do not do so, then there will be fitna in the land and fasad. Allahu Akbar. Look what the Prophet is saying. And he's giving this advice to who? The walis of the girls. If he comes to you, the one you are pleased with two things, his religion and his character. And that's important, Shabab. Because you can see the Prophet did not only say religion, he said religion and character. Because they are both just as important. Because a person might seem to have religion. He might pray five times a day. He might have a bead, wear a abaya. But his manners is filthy. This person will give your daughter, your sister, a hard time in her life. Prophet ﷺ is saying, if he comes to you, the one you are pleased with his religion and his character, then you should do what? Marry him. And if you don't, there will be much corruption on earth. Look how the Prophet ﷺ linked corruption on earth to what? He linked it to this, to religious people being rejected in marriage. And that's 100% true. Why? Because when the good Muslims are constantly being rejected in marriage, what ends up happening? When there's no marriage, there's fasad. There's fitna. So look at the wisdom of the Prophet ﷺ. So we should not be from those who reject in marriage those of deen and those of character. And that means you, my dear brother, have to have these two qualities. You have to be a person of deen and a person of good manners. It's very important. Both work hand in hand. Any questions? Uh, when it comes to Excellent. Hundred percent. They say you don't know a person until you live with them. Yeah. Our job is to do our homework, like you mentioned. First and foremost, we ask about that person. It's not enough just to base it on your face value, especially if you don't know this person. So your job is to ask around. And there's a chapter, Halla, coming up regarding that. You ask questions like, where does the person pray? Who knows this person? And then you start investigating. And that's why there's what is known as an engagement period before the contract. Because in the engagement period, things become more clear. The more you sit with the person and deal with them, the more their character becomes clear. How the person speaks. Is he a person of bad language? Is he a person of good language? Does he have adab? 
when he talks? Does he have akhlaq? How is this person when he gets angry? Does he react in a bad way or does he react in a decent way? This is what we look for and that's what Allah prescribed an engagement period for that reason. So that we can know the person's attributes and qualities. But the truth is, you do as much as you can, but then it's all in Allah's hands. After the marriage, that's where the reality of people become clear. But we have to have somewhat tawakkul in Allah. That as long as I looked for the right signs and I did my homework, inshallah, Allah will direct me to choosing the right person. Now, the second quality is what we mentioned character. They're the two things in the man his deen and his character. And obviously, that he can provide for his family. Point number eight, offering one's daughter or sister in marriage to a man of religion. Subhanallah, when you look at the Prophet wasallam, his life and the Sahaba, you will see how simple marriage is in Islam. Marriage is very simple in Islam. But unfortunately, it's some people who make it difficult. This topic, to some people, people who have no deen or lack deen, they consider it rude because of their tradition. Offer my sister or my daughter in marriage? No way! Trona. But we don't know that this was the sunnah. They would offer their daughters, their sisters in marriage to people who they knew and felt are good people of deen. The hadith here of Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu anhu. Umar ibn al-Khattab had a daughter. Her name was Hafsa radiallahu anha. Hafsa was married to a companion. That companion passed away. So Hafsa became a widow. After her idda finished, now she's ready to get married if she wanted to. Umar ibn al-Khattab, her father, he went to Uthman, his best mate. He went to Uthman ibn Affan. And he said to him, my daughter Hafsa, her idda's finished. If you want to marry her, I'll give you to her in marriage. That's the companions. So Uthman did not answer. A few days later came, Uthman said to Omar, thank you, but I'm not interested in getting married now. So Omar ibn al-Khattab, he narrates the hadith. He said, then I went to Abu Bakr al-Siddiq. Radiallahu anhu. And I said to Abu Bakr, my daughter Hafsa, marry her. So Abu Bakr did not say anything. And he left. Omar 
He then said, I became more upset with Abu Bakr than with Uthman. Because it's like he had that stronger connection with Abu Bakr. You know, why did he reject my daughter? Then a few days passed, and then Rasulullah asked for Hafsa's hand in marriage. And then Omar married her to the Prophet. After the Prophet married Hafsa, Abu Bakr came back to Omar and he said to him, Perhaps you got upset with me when I didn't give you an answer when you asked me to marry your daughter. And Omar said, Yeah, I did get upset. So then Abu Bakr said to him, Nothing stopped me from marrying her except I heard Rasulullah mention her. And I feared that he was interested in her in marriage. And I did not want to give up the secret of Rasulullah. Look at Abu Bakr's trustworthiness. He didn't directly tell Omar, I think the Prophet's interested in her. He just remained silent. But then it became clear he explained it. He said, if the Prophet did not marry her, I would have married her. That's the companions. They would offer their daughters and their sisters in marriage. This day and age, the wali, he treats his daughter, his sister, or whatever else, like this hidden treasure that, no, even when potentials want to come, it's like he makes a barrier. This is not allowed, the ikhwa. The awliya have to fear Allah Azza wa Jal. When people are ready for marriage, we should marry them. Off. This is our deen. Now, so offering daughters, sisters to people of religion is okay. And it's encouraged in Islam. Point number nine. The female beautifying herself for those who come to seek her in marriage. This mas'ala shabab is regarding the lady who someone is coming to see her for marriage. Can she prepare herself and beautify herself for that person who is coming, interested in marriage, to see her. Yes, she can. And we have the proof here. The proof is the hadith. Ubaidullah ibn Abdullah ibn Utbah ibn Mas'ud. He reported that his father wrote to Umar ibn Abdullah ibn Al-Arqam al-Zuhri that he would go to Suba'i'ah bint al-Hirth al-Aslamiyyah radiyallahu anha and ask her about a verdict from him which Allah's Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam gave her when she had asked that from him in regard to the termination of Idda at the birth of a child 
Umar ibn Abdullah wrote to Abdullah ibn Utbah informing him that Suba'i'a had told him that she had been married to Sa'ad ibn Khawla and he belonged to the tribe of Amr ibn Lu'ay and was one of those who participated in the battle of Badr. And he died in the farewell hajj and she had been in the family way at that time. And much time had not elapsed that she gave birth to a child after his death and when she was free from the effects of childbirth, she embellished herself for those who had to give proposals of marriage. That's the proof there. In a nutshell, this hadith is about a lady who was pregnant. And she was towards the end of her pregnancy, meaning she's about to give birth. Before she gave birth, her husband died. When her husband died, we know, my brothers, that when a husband dies, a lady's idda period, the period where she can not get married, when her husband dies, is four months and ten days. She has to sit four months and ten days, then she can remarry. But when a lady is pregnant, if she gets divorced or her husband dies, her idda finishes once she gives birth, even if it's one day after. So this lady was pregnant, her husband died, then she gave birth. After she gave birth, men were interested in marrying her, so she would embellish herself, meaning beautify herself. One of the companions found that strange. He thought she has to wait four months and ten days. So he said to her, how do you embellish yourself? Yani prepare yourself for marriage when you have to wait four months and ten days. So then she said, I picked myself up and it was evening. And I went to Rasulullah to ask him. And the Prophet said to her, no, you're right. Once you give birth, your idda is over. Even if it's one day. So the lady who's pregnant, her idda finishes once she gives birth. So she would embellish herself. That is dalil that a lady can prepare herself for those who are interested in coming to her house to see her for marriage. Understood? That's the proof. Regarding makeup, the scholars say she should not wear makeup. But they don't say because it's haram. They say so that she doesn't deceive. <laughs> That's actually the fatwa of the ulama. So based on the explanation, wallahu a'lam, it's permissible. Because the one coming to marry is somewhat in the pursuit of marriage. There has to be guidelines that we follow. We don't become excessive. We don't overdo things. We protect from fitna and so forth. But to give a verdict to say it's haram for a lady to put on any makeup when a man comes to ask for a hand or to see her, I cannot give that fatwa. 
because I have not come across this fatwa from people of knowledge. If they have given that fatwa, then we will give that fatwa. I might be mistaken, but I personally have not come across that fatwa. So I cannot say at this stage it's haram for a lady to put on makeup for those who are coming to ask for a hand. But the scholars did advise against it for that reason. That she doesn't deceive. No. If the wife deceives, like, I mean, she does her head blonde when she first shows it and a bunch of makeup. And then once you get married, you realize that, you know, that you've been deceived. Is, is this like, is that kind of a, a legit reason to divorce each other? It is. It is. And even to the extent, maybe not hair color, unless the husband, unless the husband specifically asked her, I like that hair color, is that your real hair color? And she said, yes. Here it's a deception. But if she's just dyed her hair in this day and age, it won't be considered a deception. Okay? But generally, if it is proven that the husband was deceived into a marriage in any way, then even if he chooses to divorce, even the people of knowledge say, the obligation of the dowry is lifted from him because he was deceived. Because he was deceived initially. This is from the people of knowledge. They have mentioned this. So deception has a de de definition as well. Like hair color, the scholars will say, you know, that might not be a considered deception because you saw it. Unless it was you specifically saying, I want that, and I want that to be the original hair color. And she says, yeah, it is. And then later on, you find that it's not. No. Nah. It's coming up in the engagement period. Can you see the lady without hijab? Yes, you can. Yes, you can. And that's coming up with the proofs, inshallah. Okay. So the lady beautifying herself, the sheikh has brought a dalil from the sunnah that, or preparing herself for those who are interested in seeing her. He has brought a proof from the sunnah that it is allowed. Point number 10 is the legislation of praying istikhara regarding those who seek marriage. That you pray istikhara Regarding marriage, we have a hadith here of Anas radiallahu anhu who reported that when the idda of Zainab was over, Allah's Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam said to Zayd to make a mention to her about him. Zayd was the freed slave of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Okay, Zayd was the freed slave of the Prophet sallallahu the Prophet ﷺ used to call Zayd his son until Allah told him, don't call him your son. He's not your son. Don't call him your son. And then to prove that Zayd is not the son of the Prophet ﷺ, Allah ordered the Prophet ﷺ to marry Zayd's ex-wife, which is this Zainab. And that's the command in the Qur'an. Allah ordered the Prophet ﷺ to marry her in the Qur'an. So when her idda finished, the Prophet told Zayd, go mention me to Zainab, which is now his ex-wife. 
So Zayd radiallahu anhu said, I went to Zainab and now the fact that the Prophet is interested in marrying her, she automatically grew so great in my eyes. To the extent, he said, I turned my face when I spoke to her. And subhanAllah, he used to be married to her. That's how much respect they had for the Prophet That now Rasulullah is interested in her. He did not have it in himself to even look at her. So he turned his face and he said to Zainab, the Prophet has sent me with a message to you. She told him, wait. And then she went and prayed istikhara. So that's the legislation of praying istikhara for your affairs. After she prayed istikhara, Allah brought down the verse commanding the Prophet to marry her. And then the Prophet he came and he entered her house without her permission. But she had accepted because it was the verse of Allah. So this shows that it's legislated, my brothers, that we pray istikhara regarding the spouse. The sisters asked the common question, how do we know the answer of the istikhara? The answer of the istikhara is in the outcome. You don't wait for signs. You don't wait for a dream. Signs, yes, are indications, but you don't wait for them. The answer of istikhara is the outcome. If I'm interested in a lady, I pray istikhara. After I pray istikhara, things go well, I end up marrying her. That outcome is the answer. The answer is the outcome. I'm interested in a lady, I prayed istikhara, things happen, I didn't marry her. That's the answer. So you don't pray istikhara and just sit there and wait. You pray istikhara and you move. And by moving, Allah will direct you to the outcome. That's how istikhara works. Not only in that and everything. The answer of istikhara is in the outcome, the decision that you end up making. Some scholars say it is wrong. They say you should pray once and then make an effort. That's it. But some say if you're still in your heart not certain, there's no harm in praying it again until Allah opens your heart. And there's no harm inshallah. There's no harm. But what a person should be careful of is being confused. Because the more the person keeps praying it, the more confused they can feel. They can feel. So really, you pray istikhara on something that you're ready to make a move on. And then if it happens, that's the answer. If it doesn't happen, that's not the answer. The dua of istikhara is after the taslim. After you make taslim, you make the dua of istikhara. Yes. If you can't say it in Arabic, you can say it in English. So all of this shabab up until now is what takes place before. Look what the sheikh spoke about. Definition, encouragement of marriage, what to look for in marriage and so forth. This is all the stages before. Now we begin with the engagement. Okay? So let's say someone has seen a girl, a sister for marriage. He's interested. He wants to go ahead. Now we talk about the engagement period. What is the engagement period? The engagement period in Arabic is called the 
Khutba. Not the khutba. Khutba is what the Sheikh does on Friday. On the minbar. That's a khutba. Khutba with the kasra is an engagement. And the khutba is asking to marry a female by means which are known to people. That's the khutba. It's when you ask a female for marriage by means that is known to people according to the norm. You're asking according to how normally people ask. The khutbah is from the beginning stages of marriage, which Allah has legislated before the contract. So the engagement period is before the contract in order for both the man and the female to get to know each other. And obviously there's guidelines, not being alone, not talking alone, yeah, and so forth. But the engagement period is a period, and it is when they get to know each other before the marriage contract. That's what it's for. The first mas'ala is regarding the engagement of the lady who is in a idda. A lady who is in her idda. When a lady is in her idda shabab, she can be in her idda for a number of reasons. Idda. Number one. First divorce. Number two, second divorce. Number three, third divorce. Number four, widow. We apologize about the board. But basically, these are four times a lady will be in her idda. A lady can be in her idda because she just had her first divorce. And if a lady is in her idda from a first divorce, how long is her idda? Three menstrual cycles, if she menstruates. If she doesn't menstruate, it's three months. So a lady in her first divorce... She's in a idda of three menstrual cycles. A lady in her second divorce, same. She's in a idda of three menstrual cycles. These two, when the lady is in her idda, it's haram for her to get engaged. It's not allowed. Until... 
is finished. Okay? Why? Because during her idda, the lady from her first or second divorce, while she's in her idda, she's still considered the wife of her husband that divorced her. When a lady is in her idda from this, she's still considered the wife. Because her husband can simply take her back as a wife. Understood? So for that reason, these two cannot get engaged during the idda. No one can get engaged during the idda. But we are going to elaborate what we mean. Then we have the lady who is in her idda from her third divorce. Or the widow. The lady in her idda from third divorce or the widow. What's the difference between these two and these two? Who can tell me? One difference. She marries Sorry? Excellent. So the difference between three and four with one and two is that three and four can never go back to that first husband. Correct? These two cannot go back. Her husband's dead. Her husband's divorced her three times. So she can't go back to him unless she remarries, divorces, then wants to go back to him. So these three and four, what we say, all of these women, while they are in their idda, it's haram for any of them to get engaged. The only difference with three and four is that during their idda, a man, a new man, can hint and indicate that he's interested in marrying them. He can only hint. Can't get engaged to her. Can't say, I'll marry you next month, next year. No. He can say things like, when your idda is finished, I would like to see your wali. He can give that type of hint. Only to three and four. Because one and two are still wives. Remember that. Yeah? Is this understood? Okay. This is found in the Quran. If you look here, there's a verse that translates, there is no blame upon you for that to which you indirectly allude concerning a proposal to women or for what you conceal within yourselves. Allah knows that you will have them in mind. See that? Allude. Yani indirect. For example, I know a sister, she's had her third divorce. Or her husband died. Now she's in her idda. Her father. Naham. If I went up to him and I say to him, after your daughter finishes her idda, I would like to come for a visit. 
I'm indirectly showing I'm interested in marrying his daughter. After her adda is finished, this is okay. This type of indirect approach, while they are in their adda, three and four, is okay. Allah Azza wa Jal has mentioned that in the Quran. And things like this, of course, is within Islamic boundaries. We don't transgress or go beyond the limits. It's an indirect approach through the wali, through the awliya. Understood? Okay. Point number 13, Shabab. The prohibition of a man getting engaged over his brother's engagement. It is not allowed for a man to get engaged over his brother's engagement. Meaning, if a brother is engaged, it is not allowed for me to get engaged to the same lady over his engagement. And we get this from the hadith on page 10, up the top. Uqba ibn Amir said on the mimbar, that Allah's Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, a believer is the brother of a believer. Look, al-mu'min ahul mu'min. The believers are brothers. A believer is the brother of a believer. So it is not lawful, not lawful meaning haram, for a believer to outbid his brother. That's in sale. It's not allowed for the believer to outbid his brother. For example, I'm selling something. You come to me to buy it. You ask me how much would you like for it? I tell you $10. Then my brother comes and says to you, I'll give you the same thing for $8. It's not allowed. The believer does not outbid his brother. Or, and he should not propose an engagement when his brother has thus proposed until he gives it up. So if a Muslim has asked for a girl's hand and proposed and got engaged to her, then it is haram for another Muslim to go and ask for a hand. The question is, when does that happen? Look, Malik ibn Anas, rahimahullah said, the meaning of dislike to get engaged over his brother's engagement is when the man asks for the lady in marriage and she agrees. That's when the engagement period starts. When the man makes an offer and the girl and her family accept. That's the engagement period. So what does that mean? If different people are going, but the family and the girl have not made a decision, it's okay. Because some people ask, like from the girl's family, can we allow more than one man to come see our daughter at the same time? Say, no problem. But once you agree to one, it's no longer allowed. Yeah? And the Muslim does not get engaged over his brother's engagement. The Muslim does not get engaged over his brother's engagement. Any questions? Does that mean like a 
Hello, auction is not haram. There's a whole chapter in fiqh which states that auction is halal. So based on this, because an auction is not a guaranteed sale. Do you understand? It's open for everyone. But when I make an agreement with you on something, then someone comes to give a higher or a lower offer, he has now affected my sale. That's what's not allowed. Wallahu a'lam. Okay, Shabab. The next mas'ala, if a lady asks about a man who has asked for her in marriage, should he inform her what he knows about the man? This, my dear brothers, is a very important topic, especially in our day and age. This is regarding amana, trust, and how you deal with people when they ask you about an individual for marriage. Let's look at the hadith. Fatima bint Qais radiallahu anha said, when my period of idda was over, I mentioned to him, meaning the Prophet wasallam, that Muawiyah ibn Abi Sufyan and Jaham that is Abu Jaham, had sent proposal of marriage to me. So Fatima is saying, when my idda finished, two men asked for my hand, Muawiyah and Abu Jaham. And she went and told the Prophet ﷺ. She said, Ya Rasulullah, Muawiyah and Abu Jaham have both asked for my hand. And remember something, Shabab. Muawiyah and Abu Jaham were both Sahaba, close friends of Rasulullah It's very important to keep in mind. So then the Prophet said to her, as for Abu Jaham, he does not put his stick down off his shoulder. Meaning what? He's known to hit his woman. Abu Jaham does not lower his stick. And as for Muawiyah, he's very poor. He's very poor. He then told her, marry Usama ibn Zayd. She said, so I objected. I didn't want to marry Usama ibn Zayd. Then the Prophet said to her, he encouraged her. Didn't force her, but he advised her, marry Usama. She said, so I accepted. I married Usama. And then people began to envy my marriage. SubhanAllah. What does this hadith teach us, Shabab? That if you are asked about a person, you speak with justice. No matter who it is. These were close sahaba to the Prophet And he still advised with justice. And that teaches us that when we are put in that position, we must be just. If you know something about someone, and you are being asked about that someone in marriage, you should speak. This is not a time where you cover for someone. No. Imam al-Nawawi, 
He's got a muqaddima in Sahih Muslim. You know the famous hadith book, Sahih Muslim? Imam al-Nawawi explained it. He's explained Sahih Muslim. At the beginning, he has an introduction. In that introduction, Imam al-Nawawi has mentioned that backbiting is haram, obviously, except in six cases. Six cases where backbiting is not haram. Not only is it not haram, you must. One of those six cases is when you are asked about an individual in marriage. So for example, you have a sister or a daughter and a person has come to ask for a hand in marriage. You want to ask about this person now. You come to me because I know this individual. You ask me, Muhammad, what do you think about this person? He has come to ask for my daughter's hand in marriage. If I know this person is not a good person, even if he is my friend, should I disclose that or should I tell the family? I have to tell the family. Why? Because this is an amana, a trust. And to understand that, reverse it on yourself. If you have a daughter or a sister and someone has asked for a hand and that person has faults that you should know about and people concealed it from you, this means you were deceived. True or not? That's why in Islam, these things do not be hidden. The Prophet ﷺ did not hide these qualities about his Sahaba. Even though he loved them very much. Wallahi, my brothers, I have brothers I love deeply. From my heart, I love them for Allah. But I would never recommend them for marriage. Yeah. It's the truth. Because marriage, my brothers, is sacred. Marriage, you're making people's ard halal. You're making private parts permissible. It's not something to take lightly. But wallah, he's my mate. When I cover for him, when I'm asked about him, we speak with justice. We never exaggerate. Never exaggerate. Speak the truth. Whether it's in good or not good. Never exaggerate. Always speak the truth. And I'll give you a nasiha. Because it might happen to you one day, you get asked. Never exaggerate. Speak only what you know. Never make the decision on behalf of others. This is something we have learned as mashayikh. You don't make the decision on others. You just give what you know. Even to the extent we do not even say this person is good. We don't say this person is good. If I'm asked, if I'm asked about a person and I know him to be good, I would not say he's good. But what would I say? I've seen only good from him. See the difference? See the difference in an answer? 
because no one knows the reality of people. That way people will not hold you accountable. You told me they're good. No, I didn't. I said I've only seen good from them. You can speak highly of the person in that way. But never make the decision on behalf of people. It will always come back to you. If the people end up having fights and divorce or whatever else. Be just. That's what the deen says. Wallah, he's my friend. He's my brother. He's my mate. He's my cousin. None of that matters. People are asking me about a great matter. Their daughter, their sister, her private part being halal for this person. I'm not going to take that lightly. If I know something, I must speak. Understood? What if you're not asked? If you're not asked, you're not obliged. But if you think it's a benefit, if you think it's a benefit, if you think it's a benefit to protect the people, it's encouraged that you do. But you're not obliged if you're not asked. No. Tayyib Shabab. Same thing if a man asks about a lady. It's not only about asking about the man. Same thing applies when asking about a lady. We have the hadith of Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu who said that a man came to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and told him that he contracted to marry a woman from the Ansar. So a man came to the Prophet sallallahu and he said, I'm getting married to a lady from the Ansar, from Medina. So the Prophet sallallahu said to him, go look at her, for there is something in the eyes of the Ansar. He gave him advice, told him, go look at her. Why? Because there's something in the eyes of the Ansar, meaning some of them have features which cause aversion. Features that are not attractive. Prophet didn't just leave him, he gave him an advice. And the deen is advice. So we give advice when we are asked. We give advice when we are asked. We move on to point number 16. Looking at the female that one is engaged to. A huge topic today. Can we look at the female? What can we see from the female? Is it permissible to see the female? And so forth. First, we will take the ahadith from the sunnah that show that it is not only permissible but encouraged that a man look at the female that he is interested in marrying. First, we have the hadith of Sahal ibn Sa'ad radiallahu anhu. A lady came to Allah's Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And she said, O oh Allah's Messenger, I have come to offer you myself to you. Just like that. She came to Rasulullah and she said, I am offering myself to you in marriage. Do you blame her? Look who she's offering herself to. Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So look what the hadith says. He raised his eyes 
and looked at her. He raised his eyes and looked at her. Then he lowered his head. That's from his akhlaq. He did not tell her, get out of here. Or you're ugly. He looked at her. Then he put his head down to indicate, I'm not interested. So then she waited. Like a miskini. So then one of the companions said to the Prophet ﷺ, Ya Rasulullah, if you have no interest in her, I'll marry her. So the Prophet ﷺ told her, marry him. She got married. What does this show us? And Nabi ﷺ looked. And this is part of the deen. You do not get married before looking. This is crazy. I remember in Medina, because it's from some of the old traditions in Saudi Arabia, when we were studying in Medina, one of my teachers, one of my favorite teachers, Sheikh Mansur, he was boasting to us in class. He goes, I did not see my wife until our wedding night. Like, mashallah, Sheikh, this is against the sunnah. He's like, yeah, my, my mother and my sisters, they saw her and they approved of her. And I did not see her until the wedding night. And then we started getting into the debate with him. The hadith says, look. He's like, yeah, but this was an old tradition for us back in the day. Now they used to put full trust. And you know, the women in Saudi, yeah, they're all covered like completely. This is not from the sunnah. Because what if you get married and then you're not attracted? It's going to be oppression on you and on the girl. So in Islam, we are encouraged to look. And the Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam looked at the lady. Another hadith. Al-Mughira ibn Shu'ba radiallahu anhu said, I asked a woman in marriage... And Allah's Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam asked me whether I had looked at her. So Mughira asked for a lady's hand in marriage. Then the Prophet sallallahu asked him, have you seen her? So he said, when I replied, I have not seen her. The Prophet sallallahu sallam said, then look at her, for it is better that there should be love between you. See, Prophet sallallahu never encouraged his sahaba to get married without looking. He told him, did you see her? He goes, no. He goes, go look at her. Because the Prophet ﷺ knew that being physically attracted is part of marriage. You have to be attracted to the person that you are marrying. Have somewhat of an attraction, at least. The Sheikh then says, and it is permissible to look at her even if she is not aware of it. Yes. Don't worry about Western society. This is our deen. Is it allowed? It's allowed. What's your dalil? The dalil is right here. If one of you seeks to get engaged to a lady, then there is no harm for him to look at her if the purpose of looking at her is to get engaged, Shabab, you don't take this as a green light where you're sitting at the shopping centers and your eyes are, well, I'm looking to get married. No, 
This is not fear of Allah. Yeah? This is not fearing Allah. This is when a person is serious about a particular individual, about marrying her. Okay? There is no harm in looking at her, even if it's without her knowledge. The Prophet ﷺ said, even if she is not aware. Even if she is not aware. And some of the Sahaba acted upon this hadith. They would look at the woman they are interested in marrying. We're not saying they would look at every lady or any lady. The ones they are interested in marrying, they would look at them even without their permission. We have the hadith here of Sahal ibn Abi Hathma. He said, I saw Muhammad ibn Maslama chasing Buthayna bint al-Dahak on a wall of hers with his eyes. So he would go up on the wall. Yeah, he would go up on the wall and he would be looking at her. So I said to him, do you do this and you are a sahabi of Rasulullah So this man found it strange. And now how can you go up on the wall and look at that lady without her knowledge? And you're a companion. So then that companion said, I heard Rasulullah say, if he enters into the heart of a man to get engaged to a female, then there is no harm in him looking at her. So that's how the Sahaba understood the hadith, that it's permissible. Okay? Based on this point, my dear brothers, based on these proofs of looking, the scholars have said that it is permissible for the man to look at the lady he is interested in marrying until he is satisfied. And based on that, the commonly asked question, can a man see the lady before the contract without her hijab? The scholars of Islam said yes. But once again, we mention the guidelines and the protection of fitna. This is not a green light for everyone at every time whenever they want. This is when a man is serious about a sister. And the scholars have even put conditions. Like if he sees her without a hijab, it's with the approval and the presence of her wali. Like it's at her house. And her family is there. It's permissible. And Ibn Uthaymin gave the fatwa that he can see her hair and he can see her hands and he can see her feet because the hadiths indicate that the person looks until he is satisfied. And when we say Islamic guidelines, it's regarding people that fear Allah. But Allah, a man comes and says, Oh, I'm not satisfied until I see everything. Brother, go throw yourself in the rubbish bin. <laughs> no, because people might start asking that. We're talking all of this within shari'i boundaries. So if a man has not done the contract and is engaged and interested in a lady, there's no harm if he sees her hair. Because he's looking to see what he is satisfied with. If he wants to somewhat see her figure, 
Okay? This is allowed. There's no harm. There's no harm because an Nabi from these ahadith encourages us. The scholars also said if the Sahaba are climbing on the walls looking at women in their yards without their knowledge, how's a lady generally going to be in her yard when she is assuming no man is looking at her? She's not going to be fully covered. True or not? Yet the Sahaba will do this. You do it today, you might be in trouble. But it's something that the Sahaba used to do. So based on all of this evidence and the understanding of the hadiths within the Islamic boundaries and guidelines, this is permissible. Okay? This is permissible. And we know mashayikh and people of knowledge who when people come to ask for their daughter's hand and they have ghalabat al like they have good hope and expectation that yes, this is the right person, their daughter starts uncovering in front of that person. Whenever he comes to visit, she will be without a hijab. Like some of them even take it to that extent that khalas, she no longer needs to wear the hijab when he comes over because we have that inshallah confidence that things are rolling and yes, they're going to end up getting married even before the contract. But someone might be careless if he allows that, for example, on the first visit. And me as a man, I should not ask a wali on the first visit. Because the first visit is a fresh visit. Do you understand? So if my daughter's covered on the first visit, that's understandable. A man can't come and say, oh, I want to see her. La habibi, this is your first visit. I'm not going to show you my daughter on the first visit. But if I'm happy with you, my daughter's happy with you. And second visit, third visit, okay. Here you can start introducing that stuff bit by bit. Is this understood, Shabab? Inshallah, this is clear. So all has to have adab, manners, and Islamic guidelines. So we shouldn't lose our marbles if we say, oh, how can she show her hair before marriage? No, there is basis for this, and it is the fatwa of our great ulama like Ibn Uthaymin. Before the engagement period, Without a hijab, you mean? Oh no, yeah, this is okay. But it depends how. You're not meeting up with her in secret. You're not sending photos. You might see a girl and you're interested in her. You saw her in the street. So you've seen her before anything. No harm. If you send someone or you, in a respectful manner, can I have your wali's number? Now you've seen her before anything. So there's no harm in that. It's all about doing things correctly. We don't do things secretly in that way. Isma bijus. Yes? How many times can we meet the lady and see her? There's no limit. Nothing in the Sharia says you see her that many times, then you get married. The engagement period is according to people's custom traditions and what they prefer. Some people, they prefer a long engagement period so that they can get to know each other properly before they actually do the contract. Because once the contract is done, that's married. Some people prefer to keep the, the, the engagement short so that khalas, they can get married quick. Personally, based on what we see and what we've yani, experienced in the community, the shorter the engagement period, the better. The shorter the engagement period, the better. We should not complicate things. 
as the Prophet ﷺ said, he has deen, he has character, he's shown that he can be a provider, I'm pleased with the person, no reason to delay the marriage. That's what we should be instilling in our community. Some people get engaged two, three years, Allahu Akbar. When you prolong engagements, that's where problems can start happening before the marriage even takes place. So we should advise against this, especially in our day and age. We have to balance between using the engagement period to make sure it's the right person, but also not prolonging too long. Have to have some tawakkul in Allah. Look at the next mas'ala right here. It is not permissible for the engaged couple to be alone and it is permissible for them to talk. So they can talk, but they cannot be alone and texting alone is part of being alone. It's not allowed during the engagement period. Some people, they do other things. There's always a way. Because people, they try to use the excuse, how are you going to get to know the people? Or how are you going to get to know the person? There's always a way. If you go to a lady's house that you're interested in marrying, and you are with her in an open room where the door is not closed, and there's other people in the house, this is okay. You still have somewhat of privacy. But the door is not closed and you aren't alone. People can enter anytime they want. So for example, you're in the salon and the mum and the dad and whoever, the brothers and whatever else are in the next room and your door is not closed. You still have the freedom to talk, but you're not alone. You understand? So there's always a way. There's always a way according to the Sharia. Some people, they text, but they make group chats. And they would add someone from the family, for example, so that the messages are not restricted and limited to the individual. They might talk on the phone, but they are not alone. He's not in his room, she's not in her room. He's sitting, his mom's in the same room. She's sitting, her mom's in the same room, but they're talking on the phone. This is okay. As long as we avoid khalwa. Khalwa is being alone, whether physically, or talking, or phone, or whatever else. That's what's not allowed. And we have the hadith here. No man should be alone with a female, except with a mahram present. No man should be alone with a female, except with a mahram present. And the hadith is in Bukhari. Okay, we've gone a little bit past the sisters, alhamdulillah. Um, there is roughly five or ten minutes, but because now we're moving on to the pillars of the marriage contract, we'll leave that, inshallah, for tomorrow, and we'll leave whatever time is left for any questions the brothers might have. Um, what about delaying marriage because of seeking knowledge? This is a question that has been asked to the people of knowledge. And their answer is an answer of wisdom. They say, marriage will never delay you in knowledge. Marriage 
will only assist you in knowledge. Marriage will assist you in knowledge. So we should not delay marriage for seeking knowledge. And I personally experienced that in my own life. When I went to Medina, I was not married. I was still single. My first year in Medina, I was single. My second year in Medina, I was single. Then I got married and I took my wife with me to Medina. When I got married and I took my wife to Medina, I personally felt I was able to seek knowledge more than I was married. Why? Because now that I'm married, I'm not worried about cooking. I'm not worried about food. I'm not worried about doing the washing. I'm not worried about this. My wife was doing all that for me. Wallahi, it gave me more time to go and attend the drus with the scholars. Sorry? First two years only when I was single. Then I lived with my wife when I took her there. So marriage will never delay your knowledge. Marriage will never delay your knowledge. No. Any other questions, Shabab? Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik. Nashadu wa la ilaha illa an. Astaghfiruka wa natubu ilayhi.